I want to talk about anger and families. And to do that, I'm going to use the book of Genesis. And I hope that at the end, you will all appreciate more uh, the scriptures. You'll appreciate the, the way the writer of Genesis has written it, how much psychology is in Genesis. And you're also going to appreciate uh, the character of the characters as they will follow some character arcs. And also, we're going to hopefully, overall, we're going to appreciate the incredible character of God through everything. So let's start. To, uh, to start, we're going to start with Jacob, because ultimately, what I want to talk about is the character of Judah. Judah is a character that most people overlook. We talk about typically Abraham, we talk about Jacob, we talk about Joseph. But Judah is actually the brother through whom Jesus Christ's line comes. And Judah's, Judah's character is absolutely fascinating. I believe that Judah has one of the biggest or the biggest character arc in all of Scripture. There are few characters, I don't think there are any characters, that take the kind of character arc from the lowest low that Judah stoops to, to the preeminence among his brothers. And we're going to talk about how he got there and how you would probably not expect this character uh, to be preeminent in anything because of where he came from. So before we talk about any character, we have to talk about their parents. So we're going to talk about Judah. We want to end up really understanding him. And so we need to go back and start with Jacob. And to start with Jacob, I'm actually going to start at the end of Jacob's life so we can kind of see how Jacob summarizes his life. We enter the story. Jacob now uh, has, you know, he's moved to Egypt because his son Joseph, now I may mess up some of these names because Judah, Joseph, and Jacob are all part of this story. So if I get the wrong name, quickly let me know so I can uh, correct it for everyone. So Jacob has traveled to be with his son Joseph, who is now prime minister of Egypt. Joseph was missing for many years. Jacob was very troubled by that. But Jacob now has arrived in Egypt, and he has an audience with Pharaoh, the man who's actually Joseph's boss, who's running all of Egypt, which is the most powerful nation in the world at the time. Genesis chapter 47 and verse 8, Pharaoh asks Jacob a question. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? Pharaoh wants to know how old he is. Now let's listen to his answer and see if there's some psychology here for you to chew on. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. 
and they have not attained the days of the years of the life of my fathers. End of his life, summarizing his life, 130 years, few and evil. This is a patriarch. This is one of the most blessed people that we have ever encountered in all of Scripture. Everyone knows Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How does a man who has such natural, God-given favor and blessing end up at the end of his life summarizing it? And by the way, he's just been reunited with his long-lost son. He calls his life, his days, few and evil. And by the way, maybe this has something to do with it. He's actually comparing his life to the life of who? His fathers. That's right. So what happened? We're going to ask ourselves that question. Big question. But what has to happen to somebody to cause this kind of what we would call imbalance? Wait a minute. Didn't you get any of the miraculous things that happened? Didn't you see any of the blessing? Didn't you enjoy God walking with you all these 130 years? Well, the obvious answer to that question would be no. So we want to know how you can miss something like that. Why? Because every one of us is in danger of exactly the same problem, exactly the same disease. In Jesus Christ, we have God's favor. We are his favorites. We have his blessing, which doesn't mean everything goes well, but it means we are walking with him. But it's possible to have that blessing and to totally miss it. Well, let's get another little snippet of Jacob's character because we're trying to understand the character of Jacob so that we can figure out Judah. We enter the story now when Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy grain. They meet Joseph, who they don't know is Joseph, and he sends them back with some grain, minus Simeon, one of the boys that Joseph keeps prisoner to kind of guarantee that they come back. They arrive at Joseph's house, and they show him the grain, and they ask to say, Dad, we need to take Benjamin back with us. Now let's enter the story and see what Jacob's response to his nine sons, used to be ten sons, Simeon is gone, nine sons asking for him to take his favorite son, his only son, back to Egypt. And Jacob, their father, I'm in Genesis chapter 42 and verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Actually, the Hebrew is even more powerful. It's me, you have bereaved of my children. The me, every time Jacob speaks something about me. This is a very narcissistic man. This is a very victim mentality. What would we call him? Uh, Self-indulgent. Uh, he is... Uh, maybe depressed, maybe angry, a number of things. But this 
whenever you read him talking, very commonly, something about me. Listen to this. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. He didn't say he was no more. He's just in prison down at, at Egypt. So we also see some histrionic or hysterical type of behavior here. He's a little melodramatic. And now you would take Benjamin? Listen to this. All this has come upon me. And no one else has suffered. It's just me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one I have left. Who's Jacob talking to? His sons. His nine sons, who he actually doesn't consider sons, as we've just read. One of those sons is Judah. So we're starting to see what is unfolding in the life of Judah that would make him, well, act out. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow down to Sheol. Basically, I will be depressed for the rest of my life. So we've got a lot of psychology that we have just read in two passages. Now, we want to understand something about Jacob. How did Jacob get this way? We love to blame people. We love to find someone to blame. He's responsible. People, typically, when we start to blame them, if we just look a little further, we see well, they had some hardship in their life as well. Jacob was the twin son of Isaac. Was he the favorite? No, he wasn't the favorite. His brother Esau was the favorite. And what we're going to see is if you are not the favorite, if your father actually treats you as secondary, doesn't pay attention to you, powerful, powerful implications for your ability to handle challenges, your ability to rise above. So what we're going to see is why Joseph, perhaps, does so extremely well despite the circumstances. Was Joseph the favorite? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. So we're amazed at Joseph, but what I'm trying to communicate to you is how important fathering is. How important it is to have your father encourage you and how problematic it is, how it sets you back if your father doesn't encourage you. And all this we're getting from the scriptures. When Abraham sent his servant to get a wife for Isaac, he sent his servant back to his people. Now, Jacob actually is going to take the same journey to find a wife, but I want you to notice the differences here. Abraham doesn't send Isaac back. He sends his servant back with, count them, 10 camels loaded to buy a wife for his son. Isaac sends Jacob 
with how many camels? Zero. With a stick in his hand, with no money, unable to buy anything, so he is going to have to work for his uncle Laban. How is that for favoritism? How about that? How about them apples, I guess you would say? How is Jacob, he's already not the favored son. He now, Jacob, arguably, uh, causes some of this perhaps by his brother has two wives already. Jacob has zero wives at home. So he decides he's, in order to get a wife, he needs to get some money. He really needs this blessing. So he, he needs the birthright. He needs the blessing. He sells, he buys the birthright for a bowl of stew. And then he swindles his brother. He dresses up like Esau when his father is going to bless Esau. See, despite him buying the birthright, it all comes through the father. The father gets to decide who gets what. And Isaac favors Esau. So his mother hears of it uh, and dresses him up. He buys into that program, ultimately shocks his father. I imagine makes his father a little irritated, I would say. To be deceived in that way is tremendous disrespect. You've got to admit that. So we've got some reason why Isaac would say, probably Rebecca, saying, you know, I don't want you to take a Canaanite wife. I want you to go and find a wife back with my people. But instead of sending him with any livestock, any camels, any anything, he sends him just with a stick in his hand. So Jacob is at a profound disadvantage when he gets to Uncle Laban, who comes out, kisses him, greets him, his best pal. He finally found a place where he fit. Everyone loves him. He found a girl he loves. He's got Rachel now lined up to marry. Everything, the train is moving down the tracks. And it says that those seven years he worked for Laban were just as a few days because of his love for Rachel. His life is finally coming together. He's going to get his wife. He's going to build a little picket fence around their place. This is going to be great. Everything he's dreamed about, everything he's longed for, is finally coming to pass. On his wedding night, well, everything seemed great. <laughs> he gets drunk. He wakes up the next morning, and the scripture is just beautiful in the way it describes this. Genesis chapter 29 and verse 25, and behold, it was Leah. <clears throat> the subtlety. <laughs> uh, I, I think this behold is a prolongation of the normal behold. I think it was like, ah, it's Leah. Ouch, ouch. Yes, we can say he deceived his father. Yes, we could say he swindled his brother. But the level of deception here, the most intimate level of deception that you can, what, foist upon someone. This is profound level of deception. This is, I would never have slept with you in a million years. And now, not only have I slept with you, I am responsible for you. I can never get rid of you. I'm trapped. 
I have no money. Everything I've worked for was for you. I can't leave. I don't have the woman I want. I'm really, really angry at the injustice of all of this. So we're starting to see now Jacob's character forming. So you could ask yourself, well, you know, why is he so suspicious? I mean, I would sleep with the light on in the bedroom after that. Right? You can't blame the guy for being a little paranoid and not trusting after that. But like most of us, there is a fork in the road of our lives. Because Jacob could have taken another route, and that route is, does this pain I'm feeling, could it be a message from God about the pain that my father and brother felt when I deceived them? Which would have promoted or provoked responsibility, repentance, seeking for uh, restitution, and trying to help understand, wow, I had no idea that deceit, that betrayal felt like that. And I need to take a good look at me. Well, Jacob doesn't do that. He just takes a good look at everybody else and gets more and more suspicious. Basically clamps down, tightens it up, says, I am going to be much more vigilant from now on. This is never going to happen again. Unfortunately, that is the path many of us take. We just get more anxious. We just turn up the volume. We just try to figure out where the next deceit or betrayal is coming from because we never want to feel that pain again. You always have a choice. You can move toward God in your pain, asking him the hard questions. Have I ever done anything like that? And I can tell you from personal experience, the answer is usually yes. In some form, in some way, in some capacity, you have done it. You see, had he moved in that direction, it would have given him something beautiful that's called compassion for how other people feel. But as we're reading the life of Jacob, it's very clear he has no interest in what other people feel. He not only can't feel what they feel, he doesn't care what they feel. He only cares what he feels. So Jacob naturally is angry with his uncle Laban, but he can't do anything about his uncle Laban because he's got plenty of sons on the property too. He has no authority or power to do anything here. But he is mad at somebody, and that somebody happens to be Leah. It says she was hated. And you, you can imagine why. Now, obviously, it was probably Laban's idea. I don't imagine uh, Leah coming up to her father and saying, hey, can you switch me for Rachel? I think this was Laban's idea to get twice as much work and marry off both of his daughters. 
But Leah had part of it. She had to buy into it. She had to put the veil on. And my conjecture, my thoughts on it, is that her father told her the lie that so many women believe. If you sleep with him, he will love you. You just wait till he sleeps with you, and he will fall in love with you. Well, that has happened in a few cases. It actually happens later to uh, one of Jacob's daughters, uh, Dinah or Dina. Someone sleeps with her, rapes her, and actually falls in love with her. It's very, very rare. In most cases, it, it doesn't happen at all. The opposite happens. Uh, you, you have a much um, lower esteem, but in Leah's case, it was even more severe because of the level of deception that she went through with it as if she were her sister, just like Jacob had done as if he were his brother. Interesting, some very interesting parallels. Could have been some incredible character growth for Jacob, but Jacob chooses not to grow. He's got someone that he can um, have contempt for, that is Leah. Well, he marries, uh, and, and to get some idea of Leah, we actually have to enter the story uh, a little bit later. When a week later, basically he says, Laban says, okay, I understand you're upset, um, but it's our custom to marry the older one first. Uh, let's, uh, you can have her this week. It's a week of the marriage ceremony. I wonder how festive that was for the, two, for the, uh, the joyful couple. While everyone else is partying on their behalf, then he gets to marry Rachel and basically tries to exclusively have a relationship with Rachel. But Leah is still there, and this is problematic. Um, so let's enter this story now, Genesis 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her, her womb, but Rachel was barren. Something interesting to think about. Why each of the patriarchs, it says their wives were beautiful, and each of them, their wives were barren. Sarah, till she was 90. Rebecca, for 20 years until her husband prays for her. And now Rachel. They chose the beauty, they were barren. Why is it that such this gift of beauty, it's almost as if God has to build in a handicap because most of us can't handle that kind of gift. Beauty, wealth, intelligence. You look at Solomon, you look at Samson, there's always something most people cannot handle that much attention, that kind of gift. And if you think that life is all about your beauty or your wealth or your intelligence, you will shut God out and your life actually will be miserable. And that is what we find with people that are profoundly gifted. I call it the curse of the gifted. They learn to rely on themselves. They don't rely on God. They never establish a, a good relationship with God. We see uh, Rachel here steals her father's household idols so she can have her God. She never really buys into the, uh, the program of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God. There's something about giftedness and being hand, able to handle the gift 
being able to combine humility with it that makes a beautiful person, makes someone like Jesus. Profoundly gifted, profoundly humble. Back to Genesis 29. And um, Leah was hated. He opened her womb. Leah conceived and bore a son, called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Just sleeping with him didn't work. If I give him a son, his first son, he's going to love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, obviously it didn't work the first time, but maybe the second son, he's given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this, this time my husband will become attached to me. Number one didn't work. Number two didn't work. The third one now, and she called his name Levi, or in the Hebrew, Levi. That is one of my ancestors. I am from the tribe of Levi. So these stories mean a lot to me. This, these are my ancestors. My ancestral mother was the one who was hated. You gotta, when you enter the story, it makes such a difference. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. And she called his name Judah. Judah number four. Mom decides to praise the Lord. Now we get to Genesis 30, verse 14. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the fields, sort of aphrodisiac is what we believe, brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Remember, Rachel has no children still. She wants to conceive. But she said to her, listen to this. Listen to how Leah views the whole Jacob-Rachel triangle. I don't know if you understand. What is Leah's worldview? This is Leah's worldview. She says to her sister, Rachel, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes? Whose husband does Leah think Jacob is? Hers. She got there first. She was in bed first. Veil or no veil? Deception or no deception? She cannot understand why he even married Rachel. She shouldn't have even wanted to get married to him. Jacob is hers from her point of view. We've got some very strange angles on things as we see. But people, if they can't shake their worldview and actually look at reality, life is tough. And life is tough for Leah. Rachel said, listen to this, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. So we learn that Leah considers Jacob her husband, her husband alone, but we also learn something very interesting. Maybe you picked it up subtly. Jacob doesn't sleep with Leah. He's always sleeping with Rachel. In order to sleep with Leah, she, he has to, she has to pay him something. 
This is the dynamic. This is the family dynamic in which Judah has grown up. His mother's hated. He's not considered really a son. And basically when Jacob comes to meet Esau, he comes to meet Esau, finally leaves Laban, he comes to meet his brother. Jacob actually lines up his children in their order of importance to him. Very, very destructive to the family system uh, with Joseph and Benjamin there in the back. The kids definitely were lined up in their order of importance, and so Leah's kids were, were ahead of Rachel's. And I believe the concubine's kids, because they start using their servants also to get kids, they're up ahead as well. So what you would expect from children growing up in this kind of a family, basically it's a war zone. I mean, this is, I mean, we, we think we've got problems today, but we, we rarely see someone with two wives. And if we do, they are very, even more rarely are they sisters. So today, whatever problems we have, and we have a lot of them, this is a very, very dysfunctional family. And they've got betrayal at all angles in here. Um, they don't trust each other. So what happens is Jacob finally leaves his uncle, has enough property after 20 years, 14 years for the two wives, six years for his flocks. They go to a place called Shechem. And in Shechem, Dinah goes out to find the girls or be with the girls of the town. And Hamor's son, Shechem, one of the rulers of the town, finds her attractive and sleeps with her, essentially a rape. Hamor, the father, comes to Jacob and says, um, look, this is what happened. It was unfortunate that it happened, but my son loves your daughter, and what do we need to do to make this work? I want your daughter for my son. Interestingly enough, Jacob, it says, Jacob held his peace until his sons came home. And then we don't hear Jacob speak again. Only his sons speak. In other words, this, I'm wondering if this is even he considers her his daughter because the sons actually take over as if they were the father. And they say, this is what we're going to do. The men of your town get circumcised. And if you all are circumcised, not only can you keep the girl, um, we will do business with you. Well, the people of the town think that's not a bad idea. There's some economic advantage to that. And they never expect that the people of Israel, these sons, are going to use such a sacred sign, something given by God to set them apart, something to say that you are special, you are a unique people group, that they are going to actually use that in an unsacred or desacred or desecrated way. They are going to twist that, essentially, to kill people. When they are weak after their circumcisions, the two sons of Jacob, Simeon, my ancestor, Levi, take their swords and they kill all of the men of the city. And then it says the sons of Jacob now everyone's in on the looting, go in over the dead bodies and collect their stuff. They take their women, they take their cattle. So they have, so all the sons of Jacob, including Judah, 
are in on this. What does that do to you? What does that do to you? And maybe another question to ask is why? Why this level of anger? Why would you wipe out an entire city when one guy did something wrong? Maybe there were a few involved, but I mean, this is crazy vigilante vengeance. This is way over the top. In fact, when we, we get to Mount Sinai, the reason we, we hear eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is exactly to prevent this kind of thing. Somebody hurts your family, you wipe out the entire city. And what does it take for someone? How angry do you have to be to run a sword through all of these people who you have betrayed, swindled, deceived? Again, this deception keeps coming up over and over and over again. And it is into this, this is the milieu, this is the ambiance of Judah's life. Reuben then ends up sleeping with uh, his father's concubine. It happens to be after, right after Rachel dies. Her servant girl, who she gave to Jacob as a wife, her name was Bilhah. Well, Reuben ends up sleeping with her, and it says Jacob heard of it. No comment is made. Again, nothing happens. But let me tell you something. The man can hold a grudge. He will hold this grudge for 50 years until he gets his revenge on Reuben at the time of his own death. 50 years he holds this grudge. Says nothing to Reuben about it. And Reuben's in his early 20s. My take on the situation is, you know, as we know, I mean, when people act out sexually, often it's, it's anger. It's just a diversion. It's diversion from the pain you're feeling inside. So Reuben in his early 20s, I mean, the scripture is pretty clear. If, if, you know, if a woman is, doesn't cry out, they're both involved. Because probably Jacob's not sleeping with his concubine. Pretty much what happened with these two wives, the way it seemed to work, is that you could have children through them, but they weren't your real wives. They, were, they had a second place, and so they didn't get slept with often or maybe not at all. So I would say Bilhah probably was a little hungry. She was, she was interested in some attention from a young man. I think Reuben, like so many angry men, was also incredibly naive. Somehow he thought, like I thought and probably you thought, at some point, at some level of interest in some crime you were going to commit that nobody was ever going to know. No one's ever going to find out. And the rest of his life, Reuben is trying to make it up to Jacob. He's trying, that's why we just read about, you can kill my sons if I don't bring him back. He's trying to make this up to Jacob, who will not be moved. He's holding this grudge, and he is going to let Reuben have it. Finally, when... He's on his deathbed. Reuben's in his 70s or 80s. He's got his children, his grandchildren around him, cousins, everyone. He's finally going to say, you, Reuben, are unstable as water. You went up to my couch. And again, he'll say, you went up to my couch. Basically saying, How, after 50 years, it's like it happened yesterday. 
I had an aunt who had a similar problem. I was, she didn't have a good relationship with my parents. I was in medical school at the time. I went to San Francisco, and they lived up near um, San Francisco. So I, I was supposed to meet them at noon. At least I thought it was noon. I got there at noon. They were not there. I didn't know what happened. And I finally looked at my book and said 11. I was supposed to meet them at 11 o'clock. I was an hour late. Well, I got back to where I was staying. I called my aunt, got the voicemail, said, I'm so sorry. I, I, I missed you. This was before the day of cell phones, which would have solved everything. I'm so sorry I missed you. No answer, no reply. Five years went by, and I saw my aunt at a cousin's wedding. And I thought, ah, oh, she probably doesn't remember it, but let me just go say something to her. So I went, and she was seated, and I knelt down next to her seat, and I said, you know, you probably don't remember this, but about five years ago, I was in San Francisco, and uh, I, I messed up on the time. I'm so sorry. And she turned to me as if it was yesterday. I was putting quarters in the meter for an hour. I said, I'm sorry. I, I, I... Look, I was in medical school. I mean, I, I was a student. I mean, there's so... no grace. And she died just a few years after that of congestive heart failure. I do believe there is a link between the things that we do and say and our physical problems. She held grudges. She held bitterness uh, like few I have seen. But I see it here in Jacob. He did the same thing to Reuben. Instead of confronting him, instead of dealing with it, instead of having any compassion on the fact that he's got a son who's very angry because he's treated him poorly, he's got a wife he doesn't sleep with, he's treating poorly. The two of them got together. All he sees is how disrespectful that is to him. He holds it until he can make someone really, really sorry, even though Reuben had tried to make it up for him, make it up to him over many years. Well, what I want to do now is just stop for a bit and... I want to reflect on Jacob because what I like to do when I speak is to give you a lot of information and then it's easy to say, oh, that was then, but this is us. This is who we are. This is the way our families unravel. This is the way our relationships go. And so I want to ask the question I asked to start with. How can you and I end up at the end of our lives saying, my days have been few and evil? My days have been few and evil. All you're seeing, this negativity bias will overtake you, and that is all you see. How is that possible? What are some behavioral things? And is it, is it possible that... there's some course correction that could take place at this time. Is there some gratitude that you could have? What we don't hear with Jacob, 
is gratitude. And many of us are suggesting probably uh, a gratitude list to our, our patients or our clients. We know that that helps with depression. How is your gratitude list? How, how are you doing with gratitude? Or is it all about your problems and things that aren't going well? I mean, gratitude list, how's your prayer list? Is it always, what about this, God? What about this? Can you help with this? Can you, what about the praise? What about the gratitude? I want to pause right now. I want to actually give you a minute to enter into some gratitude. Spoken, written, just, just let's give some gratitude for the years that you have, the days of the years of your lives. I'm going to give you about a minute. Okay. Well, let's move on. Now we've done a great job looking at psychology, family dynamic, anger in Jacob and in his sons. Let's take a look at Judah and his incredible character arc. Judah is the one, actually, who comes up with the idea to sell Joseph. I think one of the reasons we see the anger in Reuben, we see the anger in Simeon and Levi, I think Judah is probably as angry, if not more angry. And the reason I believe that is because I think that Judah was the most gifted of them all, and that's what we're going to see. He, he's clearly the most gifted, and it says even when he says, Come, let us sell our brother to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. What we see is that people respect Judah. He's got, when he speaks, people listen. So this idea of selling his brother, now I want to look at something, why they wanted to get rid of Joseph. We can't go into all the things. We don't have time today. But there are a couple of reasons why they would have wanted to get rid of Joseph. Number one is the favoritism from the father. That's the one we mostly look at. Number two, we don't think about very much, is the concept of inheritance. Everyone's looking out for their own inheritance, but Joseph now, the father's already spending the family money buying him and making him new clothing. Who is going to get the inheritance? Obviously, the only son that Jacob considers a son, and that's Joseph. He's leapfrogged over his ten brothers, now he's number one. That doesn't sit well. So getting rid of him actually makes a lot of sense. And that's actually going to enter the story when Joseph believes that his brother Benjamin is in danger, that they want to get rid of him too. So he sells Joseph. Now, it's interesting that they're thinking by selling Joseph and not killing him, I think there are a couple reasons they don't kill him. Uh, one of them is that uh, if they kill him, probably one of them has to kill him and do they trust each other even? No. They don't trust anybody. So if one kills him, who? I mean, he's the scapegoat, right? He's the everyone else. I didn't do it. So when, when everything starts to go bad, they know that. So if they sell him, actually, 10 brothers, 20 pieces of silver, equally divisible, everyone gets two, everyone's guilty equally, nobody says a thing. Judah's a very wise man, a very shrewd man. But after this, something bothers him, and he leaves, and he goes. He, he, it says Joseph leaves his brothers. Right after this incident, basically the next sentence, he, they sell Joseph. Jacob, of course, is, is mortified, depressed. 
It says Jacob left his brothers, basically goes and marries a Canaanite. Now I know you're not supposed to marry Canaanites. They sent the, everyone back to marry someone from their own family, but Judah has had enough. He's going to the Canaanites. So there's some foreboding here. He marries a woman, unnamed woman, her father's name, so possibly the writer's trying to tell us that this father, Shua, of Judah's wife, probably was a high-class citizen or someone wealthy or something. He marries her. They have three boys. The first one, it says that God killed him because he was wicked. He was just wicked. The second one, we get some sort of dramatic sexual stuff that, uh, but what, what we see is this issue of inheritance coming up again. If the second born son gets Tamar, the wife of his older brother pregnant, the son that's produced by that union gets the same double portion as the oldest brother would have gotten. Without the oldest brother, Onan, the number two, basically gets two-thirds and his younger brother gets one-third. That's the way it's going to be divided now, the inheritance. If he gets his sister-in-law pregnant, that child gets double or two-fourths and the other two get one-fourth. So either he gets two-thirds or one-fourth. That's what this situation is about. But God considers it evil and he kills him as well because he spills his seed on the ground and doesn't get his sister-in-law pregnant. Now Judah, now the stakes are even higher. He's got one son. Interesting, his only son. And he is not going to let this only son, who is going to get 100% of the estate, if he doesn't get her pregnant. And if he does get her pregnant, he's going to get one-third of the estate. Two-thirds go to the, newly, to the new child, he's going to get one-third. Judah's not risking it. He tells Tamar, where you're, uh, you know, I'll give him to you when he grows up. Uh, we'll do this Leverite marriage, it's called, when he grows up. Judah never keeps his word. Tamar, the sister-in-law, sees that the kid has grown up. Uh, she's been wearing her mourning clothes, her widow's outfit, for years. She's not on the market. She's not looking for a man. She's trusting Judah. Judah's deceived her. Until he goes to shear his sheep, Tamar is out by the side of the road. Judah has lost his wife in the meantime, thinks she's a prostitute, says, let me sleep with you. She says, fine, uh, give me your uh, signet ring. Judah sleeps with her. Interesting. Now, now this is, and this incident is what I want to think about. Let's see, like, how low can he go? To see a character arc, you've got to start somewhere. So this guy now sleeps with somebody, it's in broad daylight. He doesn't see her face. You put that together. Like, what kind of mechanical situation is this? She's got a veil on. I, I, you know, this is something very, very demeaning. Like, this is, this is not, this is just a man looking for a diversion. Goes back and then finds out that Tamar is pregnant. And then his thing is, Burn the prostitute, burn the prostitute. It's interesting how people call it moral licensing. People who are guilty, King David does this if you remember. That man should die for that. 
And Nathan says, you're the man. And Tamar says, you're the man. And here is where Judah's character arcs. Jacob's doesn't, but Judah's does. He says, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. And he begins to change. He begins to arc. And so when he goes now, now he goes down to Egypt. You see, Jacob wants to keep his sins hidden. But God needs to reveal our sins, sometimes in embarrassing ways, so that we can be humble enough to actually get our joy back. I mean, Judah is, I mean, this is such a joyless act he does with this woman. It's, it's so embarrassing. But because he does that, who does Judah now appreciate? Who else was deceived by a woman? He didn't know her identity. His father, who he has been so angry with. And that's why we get at the very end of, we're going to jump now. There's so much more we could talk about. Maybe we will another time. We're going to jump to Judah's speech. Now, he comes to Egypt. They've, um, Benjamin, they've got down in Egypt. And they found Joseph has placed the cup in Benjamin's hands. And the reason he's done that is brilliant. He believes that everyone wants to get rid of Benjamin because there's their only inheritance uh, hindrance standing in the way of these ten brothers getting what they want. He's sure that they want to get rid of Benjamin. And so he puts the cup in Benjamin's sack, assuming that as soon as they find it, they're going to say, oh, Benjamin can stay here. We'll see you. Uh, and Joseph says, yeah, Benjamin can come with me. I'm going to take care of my brother. I'm, I'm worried these, these guys are going to actually kill him. And so everyone is surprised by what takes place. Joseph give, uh, Judah gives himself as a pledge if Benjamin doesn't come back to his father. And so Joseph now says, okay, Benjamin can stay with me. The rest of you can go. And Judah stands up and I think gives one of the most beautiful monologues, one of the most beautiful speeches of all in Scripture. I'm going to enter it in verse 27. And he says, Genesis 44, verse 27, Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. Wait a minute. Judah is telling Joseph a quote from his father that his father only has two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. He's not really even considered one of them. One left me and I said, surely he's been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring my down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Judah's speaking. Now, therefore, I mean, they're prostrate before Joseph. Judah stands up, approaches the prince of Egypt, and says this. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, I want you to notice how many times he says, my father. Very significant in Scripture, the repetition. He's going to say it seven times in seven verses. And this is a man, I believe, up until this point, he is hated. Going through this character arc, suddenly he's going to have compassion 
and he's going to start realizing, good or bad, that is my father, even if he doesn't accept me. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with me, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. When I read that often, I weep. It's so beautiful that Jacob has developed this compassion and how, I'm sorry, Judah has developed this compassion for Jacob. How? Well, he's seen all of a sudden what deception feels like when a woman deceives you. Maybe now he, he understands he was always siding with his mother, but now he sees his mother was kind of, now he understands a little why his father hated his mother. Some of the, the dynamic of the family. You know, he also understands what it's like to be bereaved of your son and bereaved of your wife. He understands his father. He understands how angry that can make. He understands the pain that can produce. And what Judah is saying to Joseph, I want Benjamin to go back to my father. He's saying, Joseph, I love the same two people that you love. I love the same two people that are most important to you, your brother Benjamin and your father Jacob. And I am willing to walk the same path that you walked into Egyptian slavery to make sure the two people that you love are taken good care of, are not going to suffer. I'm going to suffer instead of them. Wow, what a character arc. This guy was saying, you know, burn the prostitute a few weeks ago, a few, maybe a few years ago. He was, he, was, he was so morally licensed, calling out other people's sins. He's seen his own, and now to the point where he can do something so beautiful and essentially save his family. And what I want to do, and just in closing now, I want you to think about your father. Is there any way you can develop compassion for your father? Because many of us in here, I would, I would probably guess most of us in here, had a father that had some problems, had some issues, did not give us everything we wanted, perhaps not even everything we needed. But what the scriptures are showing us very clearly with Jacob and with Judah and with Joseph is that everyone has a heavenly father. And behind the scenes, he's always working to say, did you see that? I, I did that. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I worked it out so that actually you could get rid of your guilt and so you could actually go forward because all of this stuff was holding you back. You're designed, Judah, Judah is designed to be a hero. He's probably so angry because he's the most gifted. You know, probably he and Joseph were extremely gifted, but Judah gifted and he excels despite his father's sort of ignor ignoring him, his father's basically treating them as disposable. And Joseph excels with his father's favor. I want to give you a minute now just to think. Is there some way, some things that you have gone through that you can use to say, you know, I think I understand my father better. I think I understand my mother better. I understand their sin. I understand their quirks, their anxiety, their depression, their inability. Well, here's an interesting thing. Judah now understands, because he doesn't really want to father Tamar's twins, that he gave her. He impregnated her. He's got twins. Because every time probably he gets around them, he feels guilty. He feels some shame. He feels like, ah, this is, reminds me of bad uh, vibes. Oh, I wonder how Jacob felt about all the children of Leah. I think I get it now. I get it now. Is there anything in your life that you've experienced that God has allowed you to go through, allowed you to see that you can say, okay, God, I see your message there. I'm going to move toward forgiveness of my father. I'm going to move toward my heavenly father who says he's going to replace or be the father that I need him to be. I'm just going to give you a minute of silence right now. You know, one of the ways that we keep the fifth commandment, which says honor your father and your mother. Interesting, the only commandment that has a promise with it, that it may go well with you that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. I believe that the principal way we honor them is by understanding the path that they have walked, understanding their pain, and having compassion, and forgiving them, not just as an act of your will, but as an act of your heart. I get it. I get it. They don't have the emotional tools you have. They probably are not taking the courses that you have taken, they don't have the education, don't have the emotional range that you do, but you can honor your parents and it will go well with you if you give them grace and you understand the path that they have walked. I think that Jacob also shows us that the path that they have walked is punishment enough. The path that they have walked alone, negativity bias, grudge holding, the path that they have walked is their punishment enough. And God is just, and he doesn't need our help for revenge or vengeance or hoping that something bad happens to the people that have hurt us. We don't want to say after 130 years, or however many years God gives you, my days are few and evil. I want to say I have had a full life. And we can do that by 
noticing the gifts that he sent us. Jacob had plenty of gifts he could have listed off and said, my days have been full and exciting. I know you've got challenges because I do, and if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you are going to have challenges. But God is with you in those challenges, and they're designed to show your character, to develop your character, and to make you walk more and more closely with him. 